0: Well, as we continue our series on the unshakable hope from Thessalonians, I want you to open your Bibles this morning uh, to the book of Hebrews, if you have a Bible, otherwise it will be on the screen behind me. The book of Hebrews, it's a New Testament book that focuses on the, the reality of Jesus Christ who is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, but he's also the great high priest. He is the high priest that no other high priest could ever do. He did what no other high priest could do. He gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Well, the book outlays that beautifully, but then at the end of the book of Hebrews, it's actually a call to the church to persevere in the faith. The Hebrews were facing intense persecution. And what the author to the Hebrews does is says, you know, look at listen, there are others who have faced persecution before you. These are part of, the, kind of the, the hall of fame of faith, you could say. These have gone before you, holding on to the faith in, in, in trials. And then he says at the end, through all those trials, we have this great cloud of witnesses who are in some sense spurring us on in the faith in whatever context and whatever suffering we are enduring. So he picks that up now in chapter 11. 11, the beginning at verse 32. Let's read that to 12.3. He says, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to talk talk about Gideon or Barak, Samson and Jephthah. These are judges. About David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. Whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, they were sawed in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes and in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, Because this is all true. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing, fixing, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, this encouragement, we're going to get to Thessalonians soon, but this encouragement just from Hebrews, from the book of Hebrews, is, is also meant for us today. Though we live in a different age. But I don't think you need to look very, very far to see on the clouds of the Eastern Front darkness forming in these clouds against Christ and His church, even in the Western world, which has enjoyed great safety over the years. And what I mean is this we are entering a season in Western culture where our faith in Jesus Christ, rooted in the pages of this book, are going to be tested more severely. There's a growing pressure from our society to question our faith if we hold to this book, this word of God, as authoritative, as truth. This week I read an alarming alarming statistic, I wish I could speak as well, that 44% of Americans, and I believe the number might be higher in Canada, find our Christian liberties, like what we're doing here, corporate worship, The public service where we preach the word of God, where we defend and hold to a biblical definition of marriage between one man and one woman, where we try to protect the sanctity of life in the womb, 44% of Americans, maybe more in Canada, see this liberty, this decision to hold on to this word as a threat to the freedom of our society, 44%. That's nearly half the population in the U.S. and Canada seeing Christianity not as a good thing, but as a threat to their liberty. And I don't think I have to explain to you what will happen if this trend continues. So what should the church do in the face of this growing cloud on the Eastern Front? What we're called to do is what the church has been called to do throughout the ages. And it's simply this to preach this word faithfully and constantly. I I love what what Paul says to, to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4 verse 1 or 2 verse 3, he says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Why? For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. So in the face of people not wanting to hear the truth, people saying that this Christian do- movement, this Christian dogma, this truth that they preach from God's word is a hindrance to the free and, 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 and liberties that we have as a society uh, needs to be stopped. What you do, you just keep on telling them the truth in love. So we preach. Because we understand, loved ones, this morning that this word, that this word of God is the most powerful message on the face of the earth that this word inspired by the holy spirit written for humanity is the most powerful message on the face of the earth it's still what they need to hear or as some would say it's god's word is your most powerful weapon in a face of of this opposition because it's not, as we will learn, no, not, it's not the word of a man or of a human. It's not the word of an angel. It's not the word of a philosopher king. It's not the word of an emperor. It's not the word of a political pundit. It's not the word of any human being. Ultimately, it is the very word of God. And we're here to preach it boldly again this morning. I am. And the question that we have as we enter our text this morning, which is all about this, what I'm talking about, is, is... Is this question? Is your heart ready this morning to receive it as the Word of God? And if it, you say yes, it is ready to receive it as the Word of God, what does that mean in, the, in, in, in your daily life? What does it mean that the Word of God is coming into your life and, and, and doing a work in there? What does it mean to you to receive this and accept this? along with the Thessalonian church, along with those cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, accepting the word of God, even at the cost to our comfort and our safety. And all of that is a prelude to the verses that we're going to read this morning from 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 through 16. It's a beautiful passage. It says this, and we always thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, Not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's church in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. And Isaiah 40, verse 8, says these words, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. That's the word we're gonna preach this morning. Let us pray and ask the Lord for a blessing over that. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that when everything else fades away, when the flower falls, we thank you, Lord, that your word endures forever. It's the most powerful message that the world needs to hear. It's the message that shapes humanity. It's the message that prepares humanity for their eternity. It's the message that we need to hear this morning and appropriate and bring into our lives so that we can be changed by it. And so we ask, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to do an awesome work through your word in our hearts again this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't tell you this morning how important this text is for the church today. But what I want to do this morning is kind of help you understand how important this text is for the church today. And when I mean by church, I mean you personally. And I want to focus in particular on just one verse that, or part of a verse in 13, where it says, in the end of verse 13, it says, Which is indeed at work the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. See that at the end? The word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. And, and, and to unpack that, I'm going to just look at two points, maybe two questions uh, this morning. Uh, how does it happen? How does the word of God begin to work in you? I think you'd want that. <laughs> how does that happen? Well, it happens when you receive it and accept it by faith. And what proof is there that the Word of God is at work in you? Because we always want proof. Well, the proof is that it becomes, it's in this unshakable confidence in Christ. So we're just going to unpack those uh, for the next few minutes this morning. Let's begin there at the top. How does it happen that the Word of God is at work in you? Well, Paul in this text is beginning with a word of thanks again. He says, and we always thank God continually when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as a human word, but actually is. We're thanking God for something. And you could maybe fault Paul a little bit to say, Paul, have you kind of forgotten that you've said something very similar to this just a few verses before this? In chapter 2, in chapter 1, verse 2, he begins by saying these words. He says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. And then he has the same reasoning that happens in our verses this morning. He says, the following verse, he says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And he goes on to talk about how they lived amongst them. So Paul is basically saying exactly the same thing. He's saying that this word, he's so thankful that the word of God has come to them and they have received it. If it's worth saying once, it's worth saying twice. You can help me out here. If it's worth saying once, it's worth saying twice. Twice, because it's so, so important. And because Paul is completely charged up by this reality that this word of God came to them and they received it and they believed in it. Paul couldn't be a happier man. You know, Paul was on a mission. Paul was on a mission for the sole purpose of proclaiming the word of God to these people. That was his mission, sent by God as an apostle to teach and preach the word of God. And what he was teaching and preaching was really the life and death of Jesus Christ, the one promised in the Word. He was on this mission to let them know that this man, Jesus, truly lived on earth. It wasn't a metaphor. It wasn't an illustration. It wasn't a symbol. It wasn't an illusion. It wasn't any of this. There was a real man. His name was Jesus. He was the eternal Son of God, born to Virgin Mary. And then he would have told them the story of Jesus' life, that he lived on earth for 33 years. But the last three years, he showed them what the kingdom of God is all about. This kingdom that came in, this kind of upside-down kingdom where he would show kindness and love. He would would heal the sick. He raised the dead. He forgave the sinner. He he sat with prostitutes and sinners. And he even showed love and and grace to a murderer. And he raised people from the dead. He, He did all of this. To show them that this kingdom had come. But this real man, Jesus, was hated by the aristocracy. He was hated by the teachers of the law. And so they crucified him. But he would have said, but but listen, listen everyone. This crucifixion of Jesus Christ was according to scripture. Because it was the Lord's will to crush him. We read in Isaiah 53 verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. But then... But then this incarnate one, who is love incarnate, broke free from the death grip. Death could not hold him. And after three days, he, 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 he defeated death. He defeated the power of the devil. He defeated hell. He did that all for you. He lasted another 40 days on earth. And he was taken up to heaven with the promise that one day he will return. This is just a summary of the word of God that he planted on the hearts of the Thessalonians. And guess what the Thessalonians did with that? They received it as truth. They accepted it as truth. Now I want you to understand that this is maybe why Paul is so thankful because because actually he was competing in Thessalonica against a lot of other speakers. You see, in the Roman Empire at that time, there were these, these rhetoricians. I think I have the definition up here of a rhetorician. There we go. An expert in formal rhetoric. You guys know what that means? Like, no idea. So Let me help you. A speaker whose words are primarily intended to impress or persuade. They're ready to listen to any smooth-tongued rhetorician. So someone, these, these were these schools of philosophy that were popping up all over the Roman world and the Greco-Roman world, and these guys would come up, trained in these schools, to just wow people with their erudition. That means their brilliance. They would stand on the courthouse steps or they'd stand in the marketplace and they would just grab that hook that would grab people's attention and they would just kind of elucidate on some kind of theme, some deep conviction that they have, and they would drive home the conclusion and everybody would say, wow. Oh, he's so smart. They were the Jordan Petersons, the Tucker Carlson's, the Oprah Winfrey's of yesteryear who wowed their audience with their erudition. And some of their erudition is extremely helpful. I get it. Paul was competing against that. And Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 2, he said, I didn't come with any eloquence. I didn't come with any wisdom. All I did was come with the conviction that this is true, that the Word of God is true, and you need to listen. He comes with this deep conviction that the Word of God is true. It's a simple message of salvation, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, I'm just so blown away that you received this and accepted it. This could be nothing but the power of the Holy Spirit. If I can't compete against these great philosopher kings who can stand up and, 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 and wow the audience, and I just come in simply in my rags and talk about Jesus, and you believe that, that's a miracle. That's an absolute, absolute miracle. It's the same miracle that happens here when I preach the gospel and and some of you receive this gospel. Many of you receive this gospel as gospel truth. That's just an absolute miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul says, I am just so thankful for you because they did two things with this word and I'm just going to explain this to you very briefly. They received the word and then they accepted it. You say, well, what's the difference? One builds on the other, you could say. The the, the receiving of the word is kind of what you're doing right now when you just sit under the preaching of the word. You take it in at face value, and you're willing to listen to the end. There's a picture of us market preaching in Papua New Guinea, and it would be like, this is my colleague who took over for me, we'd be sitting there preaching the word, and and people would just listen. They were receiving it. And and, and when they would stand up and and leave, I'm like, where are you going, bro? I always feel a little insecure because they're no longer receiving the word. we are not insecure, maybe sad, maybe a better word. But they were listening, they were receiving the word. But receiving the word is not enough. They need to accept the word. And to accept the word is to embrace the word and to take it in as your own to, as it were, to receive the word twice, to to take it in in your mind and say, you know what, this kind of makes sense, and allow it to filter down into your heart and resonate there and stay there in the grip of your life, right in your heart, to say, this is truth. This is gonna change me. Maybe I can use this as an illustration just to bring in the children of this, in the service. Children, I wonder if you've ever received an invitation um, for a birthday party that might have looked like this. This is the, the quickest thing I could find on Google search. Happy, you're invited to my birthday party, date, time, place, RSVP, Run, uh, respondez s'il vous plaît. That means respond, please. Now, you've received this from your friend at school or on uh, Teach or whatever program that you're a part of, and, 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 and you say thank you and you take it home. That's receiving the invitation. You get it? What happens when you ghost your friend now? Which kind of happens sometimes in our church, I've realized, amongst one part of the demographic here. Like, you know, I think millennials are better at it than others, but they kind of sometimes ghost you. I don't know why. Anyway, that's a totally different story. I'll preach about that later. RSVP. You don't RSVP. You stay home. You don't say thank you. You don't write, I'm coming. You stay home. You've received it, but you have not accepted the invitation. Now, children, how would you accept this invitation? Help me out here. How would you accept this invitation? Any ideas? Yes. Amen. You guys hear that? You actually have to go. To receive this invitation is one thing. To accept it is to step out of your house, ask your mom or your dad to drive you to your friend's place and say, I'm going to go to this birthday party. And your mom's like, i will got a gift. and I'll look after you. You've accepted the invitation. That is so important in the Christian faith. When you receive it, that's good. That's important. You sit under the preaching, which you're doing right now. It's another thing. By the grace of God, that the Holy Spirit begins to work in your heart, that now you accept this gospel as truth, and you allow it to begin to transform your life. Paul says, the gospel that was at work in you who believe, that idea of work is energe, which is a Greek word for, that's almost always used in the New Testament for God at work. His energe, his energy in us is when we receive this word at face value and allow it to change us. A text that's kind of comparable to that in this idea of energy and power is taken actually from 1 Corinthians 2. And and as I said, Paul was writing Thessalonians from Corinthians, and so if we can get this text up, 1 Corinthians uh, 2, verse 2, it says, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. We talked about this, but listen, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. The energy, the dynamus, the dynamite of Christ in us. That's what he's talking about. And so I wonder this morning if that dynamite, that power of God's word, is at work in you. You know what the word wants to do with you, even this morning? He wants to change you. Through his word, the Lord wants to chisel away at the lies that you believe about God, about yourself, and about others, and expose the truth. Through his word, he wants to crush our pride, our self-reliance, and make us realize that we are in desperate, desperate need of a Savior. Through his word, he wants to cut out the sin in our lives, the sinful patterns in our lives, the addictions in our lives that keep us in bondage so that we can begin to experience the joy that we have in Christ with a clear conscience. Through his word, he wants to sand off the edges of our character, kind of that roughness edge of our character, the unkind self, the unloving self, the impatient person, the rude person, the vulgar. He he wants to sand those away through His Word. Through His Word, He wants to mold and make us as a beautiful people who are filled with the Spirit of Christ and shine like stars in this dark universe. That's what He wants to do in your life with His Word. That's one reason We need to be under the Word. That's why we need to be hearing the Word preached to us so that God, through His Holy Spirit, can take the words that I am sharing, place them into your heart, show that they're truth, make sure that they're truth, and apply them to your life. That's why you need to be meditating upon the Word. That's why you need to be memorizing the Word. That's why you need to be reflecting on the Word, teaching the Word to your children. I tell my kids regularly to read the Word. Why? Because it's going to change you. And that's why you're here this morning. You're making a promise to God and his church that you're going to teach little, teach little Jack the word. So it changes him. So that old nature that is indebtedly stamped on him will be changed by the power of the word and that he'll come to know Jesus as his savior and one day confess him. But you've got to get busy teaching the word. Parents, don't give up. Don't give up. It's the most powerful message the world has ever known and ever needs. It's the word of truth. It's the word of God. You need to teach that upon your children. You need to train them in that word so that they know Christ and what he's done for them. That's how it happens here. Here's what's the proof. What's the proof? That there is this at work in you. How do you know if the word of God is at work in you? Well, I've answered it, and I hope I can prove that. It is witnessed in this unshakable confidence in Christ. It's witnessed in in this unshakable confidence in Christ. I'm getting this from verse 14. It says, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's church in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. I think maybe the clearest proof that the Word of God is at work in you is this, that you desire to pursue Jesus at whatever the cost to self. I believe that the clearest proof that the Word of God is in you is that you have this unshakable confidence in Christ that even if the whole world is shaking, you are secure because He is secure? I believe that the clearest proof of the Word of God is in you is that you're willing to deny yourself anything it takes so that He becomes your all in all. He says you became imitators. He's used this before, remember? He talked about them imitating Paul in the chapter before this and imitating Christ, and then they became models of of, of the Christian faith in Achaia and Macedonia. He's like, you guys are models because you're imitating me and Jesus. (laughs) But now he goes on in verse 14 to talk about them mimicking or modeling or imitating the church. Why? Why? What was the comparative between the church in Judea and the church in Thessalonica? The comparative was simply this. That just as the Jews were persecuting mess- Messianic Jews, Jews who had turned to Jesus, the Greek people in, in Thessalonica were persecuting those who had turned to Christ away from their cultural gods. And the intensity of the persecution seemed to be very, very similar so that Paul could say what he said here. You suffered for your own people the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews. You were a suffering person. You were a suffering saint. And I believe Paul understood intrinsically how the church was suffering. You see, you have to understand that Paul has been on both sides of the suffering church. He was the one causing the suffering, and he was the one enduring the suffering. And I think he endured more suffering than he caused. Remember Acts chapter, Acts chapter 7, it says that Paul was standing there as the, they were killing a man named Stephen because he would not deny the name of Jesus, even at the cost of his life. And they stoned him to death, and it says that Paul just looked on. But Paul was so emboldened by this antichrist movement, which happens now in the world around, it seems to gain traction. as Some people show this anti-Christ movement, other people join in and say, I can say the same thing, but I can even do more than that. That's kind of what happened with Paul. So Paul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged out both men and women and put them in prison. He knew what it meant to cause children of Christ, the children of Christ, to suffer. But now he has said, now I know what it means to suffer as a follower of Christ. And it's intense. It's intense. It can be very intense. You face death all day long, he says elsewhere. But the suffering that they face in Jerusalem and the suffering that the Thessalonians face in Thessalonica, and loved ones, the suffering that you and I will face as these days mount up against us, have one common denominator. Do you know that? One simple common denominator. It's Jesus and his word. Verse 15, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. That's the common denominator of suffering. It seems that the same anger that was displayed against Christ that boiled to the point that they had but one blood-curdling scream to give, crucify him, crucify him, that became almost psychotic, does not end with Christ. Christ. It will be experienced and is being experienced by his church throughout the world, even today. I'm part of a persecution.org, and I get emails regularly from Jeff King. I don't know if you know him. He's the director of persecution.org, and he shared how the Christians in, in, in uh, Afghanistan are under complete and utter threat to safety constantly because they have apostatized. That means they have left the Islamic faith for Jesus, and they're under constant threat. The same hatred that have people had for Christ in the days be- be before is the same hatred that they have for Christ's people today. Jesus says, don't be surprised at this. John 15, verse 18, he says these words. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And if it's persecuted me, he says elsewhere in the next verse, it's also going to persecute you. Just take that at face value. Do not be surprised at the persecution that will come against the church. It's not if it's going to come. It's simply when. When? You say, well, that's a pretty heavy message for Thanksgiving Sunday, Pastor Ian. You're going to be persecuted. If you allow the name of Jesus to fall on your lips and you take this word as authoritative, as gospel truth, and you're not going to play with some hermeneutic that tries to change its value and its truth. You say, well, that's a pretty heavy message, Pastor Ian. But the opposition against the gospel will not go away if we put our heads in the sand and just sing about a nice, clear, sunny day. But the days are coming to believe in Jesus and his word will come at a cost to you. Mark my words. But notice how Paul starts this passage, and I think it's very, very important that he starts this way. He says, I, I'm just so thankful. I'm just so thankful. I can't stop telling God how thankful I am for you. I just want to tell him again. I'm so thankful. Because they were persecuted for their faith? No, that's kind of sadistic. Paul's not thankful for the persecution in in as much as he's thankful that the spirit of Almighty God has entered these people, that they're willing to be persecuted for the name of Christ. That's what brings him thanks. Persecution or not persecution, that's notwithstanding. The fact is that they have embraced Christ, that they're willing to live for him and die for him because he is so real to them. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for this congregation. That was my prayer for the people I preached to in Papua New Guinea. Not that they would be persecuted. Maybe that would be good for them. I don't really know. But that that Christ would become so real to them by His Holy Spirit that they were changed by the power of this reality. That's my prayer for you as we celebrate our Thanksgiving meals. That Christ is in you, the hope of glory, that his word is shaping you, changing you, making you more like Jesus. And I just want to close with these words from Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 3, because I think, you know what? We need to be encouraged in this. If not now, bank it for a later day where you need to be strongly encouraged in the faith, in the face of opposition. This is so beautiful. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, others who have gone before us who have not denied the faith in the face of severe trials, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The Word will help you do that. It will expose your sin. Don't you worry. And let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Fixing, fixing, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Like, I'm just tunnel vision here the pioneer and the perfecter of faith for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, which you might face as well, so that you, listen, you will not grow weary and lose heart. With Christ at their side, with Christ in your vision, with Christ taking up your rear guard, you, my loved ones, do not need to grow weary and lose heart. These days are numbered. Your goal is secure. The race has been finished in Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for this gospel of hope. In the face of persecution, in the face of trials, in the face of a growing Animosity against the church, especially if the church holds to your word as authoritative in every area of culture and life. Lord, we will face the heat. Lord, help us not to be afraid of that reality. Help us to know that the the saints who have gone before us have, have experienced the same. And our own Savior, Jesus, has gone down that path himself. Fill us with courage. Fill us with strength. Fill us with this deep reality that ultimately all we have in this world is Christ. And that's all we need because he has done the work for us. He is our Savior, our Lord, our Master, and King. And we love you, Jesus. In your name do we pray. Amen.